Good afternoon, and thanks so much for joining us on this Tuesday, a very busy Tuesday. A lot of people watching to see what is happening south of the border. We're going to spend a good amount of time on the program today talking about the vote taking place in the United States. Of course, it will be a few hours yet before we start seeing results and getting a better idea on what is coming up. But we are going to talk about that on the show today. Another big story today as well, the report released by BC's Seniors Advocate confirmed I think what a lot of it, a lot of us already knew. Uh, many seniors in care say the restrictions that have been put in place because of COVID-19, while they understand why they are there, they are more fearful of dying alone than they are of dying from that virus. So what does that mean for the future of visitation in long-term care? We are going to check in with the seniors advocate a bit later on in the program. But as mentioned, a lot, if not to all eyes on what's happening in the United States today and and a former Canadian diplomat who served in multiple U.S. postings says Canadians have every reason to be concerned about what is unfolding south of the border. And Colin Robertson joins me on the line now, vice president and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and hosts its regular Global Exchange podcast. Colin Robertson, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Good to be with you, Jill. What do you think is, is at stake the most for, obviously we're watching because we want to see what happens and people will have a side that they prefer, but what is the most at stake for Canadians? Continued access to the U.S. market. Certainly British Columbians will appreciate the biggest market for British Columbia is the United States. There's also a lot of investment going into, say, the film industry, the high-tech industry, future industries, resource industries comes from the United States. Anything that threatens that, threatens the livelihood of British Columbians. Do you feel that we tend to get or take it more personally when there, where there are those real examples that you've just given us? Do people tend to get caught up in it and take it more personally as, a, as a looking at which candidate they personally like better? Well, they should. I mean, I think if, we, if, if, if British Columbians appreciated how many jobs in the province depend on our ability to trade with the United States. And it's not just British Columbia, it's all the rest of Canada as well. 75% of what, what we export to the rest of the world goes to the United States. A little lower for British Columbia, but still more than half of what you export goes south. And we also import a lot because, of course, we've got manufacturing industries. And so that trade, even with the the border closed to the regular tourist traffic, which is also affecting British Columbia, there's still the trucks are coming forward. So you go to your grocery store, most of the fresh fruits and vegetables come probably via the United States by truck. So let's look through uh, the two scenarios then. I know you've written about this as well. So if we are looking at another four years with Donald Trump as president, what does that mean for Canada? Well, it means a, a relationship at the top between the Prime Minister and the President, which is uh, Mr. Trudeau's made done, I think, his best efforts to try and sustain a relationship with a man who is unpredictable, quixotic, and who you have to watch more of his tweets at 2 a.m. in the morning than the kind of regular conversation any Prime Minister in the past would have had with any President, whether they were Republican or Democrat. So it's a much more difficult relationship, but it's not just difficult for Mr. Trudeau, it's difficult for most Western Democratic leaders, whereas Mr. Biden is somebody who we know who believes in the, the kind of values that we also believe in, that is internationalism, multilateralism, things that allow Canada 
to enjoy its prosperity and security. Take defense, for example. We depend on the shield of the United States. They've got such a powerful military, and yet we have a binational bilateral defense agreement in NORAD. Mr. Trump's talking about jettisoning that and also saying to Canada, you've got to pay a lot more if you want it. You know, our, our taxes would go up proportionately if we had to pay full freight in a defense alliance or if we didn't have that shield. Uh, what about Canada's relationship with China and how does that change? Is one particular, is, is one better than the other as far as what happens in the United States? Um, good question. I, I think it would be more uh, better disciplined under a Joe Biden, but I think the Americans, both Democrat and Republicans, are calling China out on technology transfers, intellectual property theft, uh, and the Chinese aggressive behavior towards its, its neighbors, you know, India, Taiwan, Hong Kong. Human rights is something that Canadians care just about as much about as Americans. And yeah, we have a particular interest in Hong Kong, where there are the, the biggest expatriate population. Again, you'd appreciate in Vancouver and British Columbia because of the close ties between Hong Kong and, and British Columbia, that we've got uh, almost half a million Canadians living there, many of whom have properties or send their kids to schools in Vancouver. And looking at what we might see later today or in the days to come, there, there is some concern and people wondering if, say, Joe Biden wins, but it's not by a big margin. There is going to be calls. There's going to be accusations of voter fraud. There could be violence. And, and what does that do as far as if we see things go sideways in the United States? What, what ramifications does that have for Canada? Well, it chills investment. You'll see the stock market take a plunge. And that's not good for us. What we, because we are a trading nation, our prosperity depends on ability to trade. We look to stability, and the biggest market in the world, and also our biggest market, is the United States. So if there's turmoil in the United States, we say the Americans catch a have a sniff, we catch a cold. So you don't want to see that. So we got to hope for the best. We got to hope that the it is the the longest enduring democracy. We've got to hope that the checks and balances and the system, uh, as it was created, will be resilient enough to withstand the pressures. And it is certainly going through a stress test today. All right, we will leave it there for today. Uh, I know it's a busy day for you, Colin Robertson. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you know, it is Election Day in the United States. So let's check in with Reggie Cicchini, Global National's Washington correspondent. Reggie, th- thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. A busy day for everybody in the States. So where is everybody today as far as campaigning or those last photo ops and being out and encouraging people to vote? Yeah, look, so starting with the Democrats, Joe Biden made an early morning trip to church and then he flew off into Pennsylvania once again, making a last minute stop in Scranton, his hometown, where he went to his childhood home, talked to some uh, voters out on the street. He actually signed the wall inside his home uh, and then is heading back into Wilmington for his watch party tonight. President Trump, uh, he started his morning on Fox News, uh, made some you know comments about his four years in office, made some comments about what he'd like to see going forward with the election, then made a quick stop at the Republican National Committee office in Virginia, where he made some comments saying he doesn't have an acceptance speech written. He doesn't have a concession speech written and said that, well, winning is easy for someone like him. Losing is not. So that's kind of that closing message from President Trump. Hmm. And was he asked specifically then if he had worked on his speeches? 
Yeah, somebody, one of the members of the press corps had said, you know, Mr. President, do you have a concession speech ready if the election doesn't go in your favor? And he simply said that he wasn't going to look for that. He wasn't going to deal with it. Somebody will win, somebody will lose. And that's when he made the comment saying that he didn't want to lose. Uh, what's happening as well? I know in some uh, key places uh, there there are, there are concerns about things perhaps getting violent or uh, there are there being fighting and, and that. What's happening on that front? Yeah, look, there has actually been some uh, some some instances of uh, intimidation tactics being taken place uh, at polling sites around the country. We know that there's already been an arrest in North Carolina where uh, a person who was legally carrying a firearm at a polling station opted to not leave and then was charged with trespassing. Uh, and this is kind of, this is what those those uh, law enforcement officials around the country have really been fearful of that somebody may uh, target a polling station with some kind of intimidation tactic. There were concerns that President Trump supporters may take part in intimidation tactics. But for the most part, things have actually been going fairly smoothly. We haven't seen uh, really long lines at a lot of polling places around the country. And where they have been long, they've been moving along fairly smoothly with only a few technical errors. And as far as the votes go, because I think this is where it can get a little bit confusing with a record number of mail-in ballots, some states start counting right away, others wait. How do we know how things are going to play out in the actual counting of the ballots? Yeah, look, it's really going to be difficult to try to figure out who was the winner tonight if we don't have a very clear kind of blowout electoral count as the polls begin to close. Uh, and I think what election watchers and experts have been saying is just because the numbers start to come out from states that count early, uh, don't, you know, don't just assume that the needle is going to remain in that direction. We will get an early dump of results from places like Florida and Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona and Iowa. When those states poll, we should have a good idea as to what some of the early vote looked like and what some of that final vote looked like, but that's not really going to determine what the rest of the map looks like. Pennsylvania didn't start counting their votes till today. Same with Michigan, same with Wisconsin. These are all key states that could really become make or break. And when do you think we'll actually start getting results that will, will begin to shape and form? Like you said, if, if it's very close, it couldn't, it might not happen this evening, but when in the evening do you think we'll start to actually get a picture forming? Well, let's pay attention to what happens uh, in the 7 o'clock hour when most of Florida's polls start to close. Joe Biden and the Democrats had the very early lead when it came to uh, early ballots that were cast. Uh, Republicans in the closing days of early voting were able to whittle that down to something around 200,000, maybe 150,000. However, Florida comes out with their early results. That could be an early indicator. Arizona will be another one to watch. This has been a reliably Republican state. Democrats have been making some inroads there in Maricopa County, which is the largest county, uh, has been slowly shifting blue. If we see that Joe Biden, when Arizona's polls close, has taken that state, that could be another indicator. If if Donald Trump has taken places like Georgia and North Carolina and Iowa, that could be an indicator that Republicans came out strongly at the polls. I, I saw an analysis this morning, someone saying, or, or put still, uh, put Texas as a state that could go either way, saying it could be the first time in, what would it be, 50 years that Texas went blue. D- does that even seem possible? Well, look, four years ago, uh, when, when we were watching the election results come in, and even, you know, when, when Beto O'Rourke was making his run up against Ted Cruz, we saw that there was a demographic shift taking place inside Texas. It is no longer a reliably red kind of white state. The demographics are changing. It is now becoming more diverse with its population. So we are seeing a slow shade of purple in Texas, which is why it became a toss-up state. Republicans could win it, 
but the margin that they win it is going to be looked at to see maybe two years from now, Texas is a full state that becomes in play. It's the same situation in Georgia with the suburbs kind of encroaching into the Atlanta area. Uh, we're starting to see the state become more diverse and we're seeing Republican lose their stronghold in these once reliable states. And how do you think COVID is having an impact both on how the current or how the current president has dealt with this pandemic and physically feelings and concerns about safety voting today? Look, COVID-19 has played huge into this pandemic. That's why we've had so many mail-in ballots. That's why we could potentially see a delayed result in trying to get into uh, what, the, what, uh, what, what things are going to look like tonight and over the next couple of days. It's why the president has also faced pushback for his comments about mail-in balloting, for his comments that were flagged on Twitter uh, saying that, you know, the, the, the delays should not be against, uh, should be illegal and, you know, that, that this could lead to violence on the streets. COVID really has heightened the tensions, heightened the emotions, heightened the political divisiveness in this country, uh, there are a growing number of Americans who are not on side with President Trump's sole focus on the economy when it comes to this pandemic, especially when you have someone like Dr. Burks making a comment over the weekend uh, that things are going to get more deadly as the weeks and months go forward. Uh, and that's, that, that really is walking into the voting booth with people as they cast their ballots. And moving forward, do you think that, and again, I know this this will have to do with the outcome and the numbers, but there are concerns about legal challenges as well, that after tonight, our focus might be shifting to whether or not President Trump is launching legal challenges or there are vote results being contested. Look, it's possible that we could see the president threaten to use his lawyers even more so than he's already done. But we also have to remember, if this becomes a clear-cut victory for someone like Joe Biden, if he walks away from this, you know, whether it's tonight, whether it's in the days to come, with something on the plus side of 300 electoral votes, that's not really a sneaker. It's going to be difficult for President Trump to try to put something together to say that this was a rigged election against him. Because at the same point at this uh, in 2016, when Donald Trump walked away with 300 electoral college votes... He was still saying that the election had been rigged against him. So the, the, the comments may not hold much weight in court if this is very close. If this comes down to something like Pennsylvania, where uh, they are allowed to take a couple of extra days to cast ballots, I think you will see the president mount a legal challenge and try to use the Supreme Court that he has put three justices on to his favor to try and get this election decided for him. All right, uh, Reggie, busy day uh, for sure. We'll continue watching and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We are continuing to watch what is happening in the United States with the vote taking place today. We will have coverage starting right here, special U.S. election coverage starting at 6 p.m. Right now, though, we are joined by Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada, also co-author of the best-selling memoir, The Art of Diplomacy, Strengthening the Canada-U.S. Relationship in Times of Uncertainty. Bruce Heyman, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. What are you watching for as we start to see those returns? I know we haven't seen them yet. Some exit poll numbers expected within the next hour. What will you be looking for as we start to see those returns? So first of all, exit polls are probably something that I would like to shut off and not look at (laughs) because we have 100 million people who have already voted. And so the exit polls may skew to Donald Trump so that everybody should know that, number one. Number two, Florida's always been tight. Florida's close. Florida could go either way. But the Biden team has now, and I've been on the phone with them today, we have multiple paths to 270, which is the number of electoral votes that are needed to win the presidency. Um, Donald Trump has very, a very narrow path. 
and he has to win Florida to even be in the mix. And even with that, I think it's a it's a heavy lift. It's not impossible, but you know he he did it once before, and it's not to say he can't do it again. But the numbers of early votes and the numbers of other states. The second thing I'll look at after Florida is North Carolina and Georgia, and you'll get these three early on in the Eastern Time Zone. And I would say if any of those three go for Joe Biden, that path now is even narrower because those were three red states um, that uh, Donald Trump really needs to keep. Then you're going to move to the Midwest. You will not get results. You may get some early results, but that could take days for Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, even though the numbers look pretty good uh, from a polling perspective. And then you're going to make your way out west. And you're going to have to look at I'm going to look at Arizona as a potential flip from red to blue. And the biggest surprise of the entire night will be Texas. And nobody really has a handle on what that looks like right now. Do you think uh, Texas could change? Could. Yes, could. Will. Probably not likely. But it would be an unbelievable uh, statement for the Republicans to lose their biggest prize state. It's going to be close, regardless of which outcome it is. Um, but it's possible now for the first time um, because of the early vote. Early vote exceeds the total vote of 2016 in Texas. Hmm. Do you think that's going to play into it? Because there's been a lot of talk and analysis of the early vote will benefit one more than the other. The turnout today benefits one more than the other. And does that, in fact, cancel each other out? It could. And it just depends on the turnout. I was just on the phone uh, with a uh, former colleague of mine, Ambassador, uh, who's, who's in Texas, who said, gosh, the voting turnout today in Texas looks light relative to what people were expecting if that's the case and look i'm only you know takes spitballing this just taking a shot at it but i don't think that's good news for donald trump if he's not getting the turnout he really needs a big turnout today and he's going to need something like 60 percent of the vote in north carolina close to that in georgia close to that in arizona of the vote today to match up what the early vote benefited uh, Joe Biden. When we talk about uh, the Electoral College as well, and we also talk about the popular vote, we know that Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. uh, won the popular vote in the previous election. Is one of the paths, though, to 270 for Joe Biden, or I suppose for, for Donald Trump, if you were to win the popular vote, say, by 6 million votes, is there a number for popular vote that also gets you there? They say They say in the total... If you exceed like 6% for the Democrat, that it means that you'll pull along. But the reality is that number could be really large because California and New York can have outsized votes, but you don't get any more electoral votes, even if there are millions and millions more, you know, support one candidate, in this case, Joe Biden. Um, So, no, I I don't think so. Um, I do think, though... Um, the, the Midwest that uh, that Joe's going to win back, and that's the most likely path for him is he wins Wisconsin, Michigan, most likely Pennsylvania, but doesn't need to if he takes something like a North Carolina or an Arizona or a Georgia. But 
there's so many paths for a Joe Biden to win, but that still doesn't mean he'll do it. I mean, look, this is an election and we won't know what those ballots even look like until they're opened up, the ones that were mailed in and the ones that are cast today. When looking to the future, there will be a president declared at some point. When we talk about the Canada-U.S. relationship, and I'll start Mm -hmm. with if it's a Biden presidency, what is the the main benefit to Canada? Trust, honesty, integrity, friendship, um, loyalty. Um, You know, that's Joe. I know him. He swore me in. I traveled with him when I was the ambassador of Vancouver, you know, when the prime minister hosted him. Uh, after the Trump election last time in Ottawa, hosted Joe Biden. And he's somebody that I've known for years now. And I can just tell you that that's very important to a relationship. And we have relationships in our personal lives. We we do that because of trust, honesty, you know, values, expectations of of cooperation and collaboration. Will we have differences? Sure. Will we have to work those out? Always. But if you start from a basis of honesty and trust, you can tackle just about anything. If you start from a basis of I don't trust you, you're awful, I'm going to take advantage of you, I'm going to squeeze you, give me this or I'll do this to you, which is all what Trump was doing to not only Canada, but many of our allies around the world. Uh, In a minute to go, what does another four years for Canada with the Trump administration look like? Erratic, irrational, impulsive. Uh, you know, sometimes dishonest or unreliable, you know, kind of, you know, putting on tariffs on aluminum six weeks after the implementation of a new NAFTA, uh, threatening, you know, the border, holding back N95 NAS, doing all this stuff. He'll, he'll just be the most radical of himself because the guardrails will be gone from a re-election and many of the people around him are just enablers. So that's that's a scary thing. All right, uh, Bruce, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but I uh, appreciate you making the time for us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Be healthy, everyone, and we'll get through this. Well, as you've been hearing on the news today, we heard from British Columbia's seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie, released the results of a province-wide survey that takes a look at the impact of visit restrictions at long-term care facilities and assisted living homes. The report is called Staying Apart to Stay Safe, and it reflects the experience of more than 13,000 residents in BC, their family members, and what they have been going through during this pandemic. And seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie joins me me on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. I, I heard in uh, that report from Janet Brown mentioning that this, uh, you had said that this is one of the most, if not the most difficult reports uh, to put together. Why was that? I think it was the magnitude of the letters and the personal stories that came with the survey, the literally thousands of them, Jill, um, that told a very, very powerful story of love, um, of the capacity for families to care for each other, and of a separation from loved ones that is causing extreme distress for many, many people.
there has been a lot of talk about the visitation policies and a lot of understanding as to why they were restricted and stopped in the beginning of the pandemic. But the report touches on something that we've been hearing from people for weeks now as well in the keeping people safe. We understand that. But if it's making them fearful and making them miserable and without hope, what is the point? Yes, and I think we need to go back to understanding the basics of we started down the road in this pandemic of saying we are going to have to learn how to live with this virus and how to manage our lives as best we can because this virus will be with us for many months and those many months appear to possibly stretch into a year or more. And so initially, the lockdown was required, the visits were restricted, uh, while we figured out sort of what to do and how to do it. Now what we have to do is refocus on that and realize that it's been nine months now since we imposed these visit restrictions. We relaxed them a bit in June, although not to the degree that many people were hoping for or, or that many people in the public think we did. And now we've got situations where daughters haven't seen their mom for nine months because they were the second sister and their other sister is the designated visitor. And then you have within the people who are the designated visitor, um, I think a revelation for many that these visits that used to be, you know, several times a week or daily for an hour or two each time are now for the most part 30 minutes or less once a week or less, and they're usually in common areas, not in private rooms, with people unable to touch. And we're sort of thinking, okay, what the, the purpose behind this wasn't to live this way for another year. And so when, we, when that sinks in, I think we have to realize, okay, we've got to learn how to, how to do this a little bit better. Some of the other numbers that were put out of this report as well, that tragically 151 residents of long-term care have died after getting COVID-19, but more than 4,500 other residents have died from something else, which that number in itself, when you think about it, people in long-term care are there in many cases, and and they don't have a long time to live. They're in the final stages of life. But that's more than 4,500 people then that didn't have loved ones with them and didn't have anybody with them really at the very end of their lives. Yes, and I think that's important to understand because we've done this to keep people safe from COVID because COVID can kill you. But in the end, we haven't, we aren't keeping people safe from death. We, that, that is not the goal of long-term care. The goal of long-term care is quality of life in our final uh, year or years of life. And What we've got now is a way of living for the foreseeable future as as in our current um, visit guidelines that are going to see people heavily restricted from being able to spend meaningful time with their loved ones, and yet they are in the last months, weeks, and possibly days of their life. And so what are we keeping them safe from COVID for if it's not to enjoy what time they have left? with the ones that they love. Uh, So do you think there will be more changes when it comes to visitation and how we are dealing with COVID-19 and long-term care? I do hope so. And I think that in conversations I've had with everyone, from the minister to the public health officer to the medical health officers and the health authorities to the care home operators, 
everybody uh, very much wants families to be reconnected. I don't think there's anybody out there who who thinks this is a good thing. Um, it's managing the risk and finding that balance. But I think what uh, is important to to sort of step back and and assess and use the uh, you know information and data is the current people who are visiting. We aren't increasing the risk by very much, if at all, to allow them more frequent visits in the rooms with their loved one. We can we can do that one without really moving the risk meter very much. Allowing additional people in, mathematically speaking, does increase the risk because each additional person has the possibility that they will bring that virus in. We can't deny that. But the other thing we have to realize is... It, it's not like floodgates are going to open and care homes are going to be swamped with visitors. I wish it were, because that would mean that, you know, people in long-term care are getting visitors all the time, every day. That's not what it was like before COVID, um, and that's not what it will be like now. It's going to be a small number of people, but that connection, that relationship is profoundly important for those people. If you were the daughter who flew out from Toronto once a year or twice a year to visit your mom in the care home, you haven't really felt the impact, and frankly, neither has she. But if you're the daughter who went every day, or you and your sister went every other day, this has been profound because your dad now hasn't seen one of you for nine months, and he's only probably seen the other one for 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe once a week. And so we need to to sort of understand what risk we're really taking when we are saying, okay, you can visit more frequently if you're the current visitor. Okay, that's not a lot more risk, if any. And then, okay, some people are going to need to have an additional visitor. It isn't going to be everybody. And I think if we if we work through that, we can start to see, um, yeah, we can manage this. And it also is important to remember that we've got nine months behind us, but we've got more than nine months ahead of us. And so we really have to ask ourselves, are we saying that, you know, a mom can't see her daughter for over a year? And I think that's clarifying um, if we listen to the to the the wisdom of the people who've lived full lives, who understand all the risks in life, and who really just want to spend time with their loved one. Uh, do you think there's the possibility as well of looking at it either uh, looking at it regionally that especially if you are say on Vancouver Island or if you're in a part of the province with very low numbers the risk is going to be even less uh, do, are we looking at something like uh, wearing uh, uh, protective equipment and, and bringing in rapid testing I mean if we can bring in rapid testing for airports and for schools surely we can bring that in for long-term care I think so regional approaches I think are something that we may have to evolve to um, thinking about for a variety of things. Um, And I think that as testing evolves, uh, and it is evolving, I think there are definitely um, arguments to be made for being able to provide the confidence to, whether it's to the medical system or whether it's to family members or to whomever. But if it gives them more confidence to increase visits by uh, introducing new forms of testing, I think that that is absolutely something we should um, we should contemplate and do. And you know, as I say, we also need to think about um, if if there are outbreaks that are 
demonstrably larger in certain areas and there's a lot of virus circulating in, in a particular community, it might make sense to have um, that community have a different approach than the other communities where the rate of transmission is much, much, much lower. And did you get any indication, like you said, when you've talked to various people about this in various positions, did you get any indication when we might see some changes made? I think people are very anxious to um, allow residents to see more family members. Everybody, I think, is, is feeling the pressure around that, and they are aware of the amount of time that has elapsed. I think the survey might have revealed for some that the the type of visits they thought were happening now really aren't happening to the degree that we would like to see. But I think it is balancing uh, risk. I think that the numbers coming out of Fraser Health in the last week, and particularly over the weekend, um, have raised uh, concerns with a lot of people. And so I think that that information is being digested. And I think um, people are looking at a way to do this that is safe um, and that meets um, the needs of families. And, And what I'm saying is listen to the voices of these family members because they are saying they'll accept some risk. Most people support some form of visit restrictions, Jill. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, they, they appreciate that it's it can't go back to the way it was before. But these are modest, right? So I think allowing current visitors more time, and, and we'll if we move the visits to their private rooms, we can do that. Some will argue that the visits are more safe in the private room than common areas. And then look at how do we get another person in? And how do we make sure that you know, that daughter gets to see her mom. Um, that I think we've got, pe- people are wrestling with, and I am hopeful that um, we will see some response. All right, uh, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for making the time for us. My pleasure. Thank you, Jill.